Who cares about your team winning the Super Bowl when your team could win the offseason? My name is Danny Heifetz, and I host the Ringer NFL Draft Show with Danny Kelly, Ben Solak, and Craig Horlbeck. We cover trades, free agency, the draft, obviously. We cover quarterbacks, and there are a lot of good quarterbacks this year. And the teams at the top of the draft, Washington, New England, Chicago, big teams with big histories. Listen to the Ringer NFL Draft Show on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, View its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio is Man Cave is an Ice Cave. It's Andy Greenwald! Sounds good. I like that. Thanks. Andy? Hey, man. Hey, here we are to talk about the finale of True Detective Night Country, which just aired if you're tuning in on Sunday night. Come with us. Now what happens? Do our theme music start? <laughs> Andy, would you like to have a general conversation about this show, True Detective Night Country, before? Well, a little I kinda bit. I kind of talk a little bit about what happened? I mean, I don't know I don't know where your head is at with this. I want to be very clear. This did not land for me. Gotcha. This did not work for me. Um, I found... You can use land. You're, you're the guy who can say whether or not it stuck the landing. Legally, I can't say it on this podcast. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't want to get into why, but Kaya and I can explain to you later. Yeah. Right. Um, I think that making things is incredibly hard. And I think that making murder mysteries is incredibly hard. And I am fascinated by some of the choices made over the course of these six episodes. And I'm very eager to talk to them, talk about them with you. But overall, like this was, this was a disappointing night of television for me. I don't want to come on here and be like, and then guess what happened in yeah. the station, yeah, you know? Yeah. But I want to be fair-minded. I want to go through a bunch of stuff and and have a you know free-flowing exchange of ideas about it because it's no fun to be like. I do want bad. to have a kind. I don't of, think it was bad. I think there was some things that were. I'm struggling to wrap my head around. I want to have a chat about like the nature of TV mysteries and especially those told over these kind of limited series, limited season arcs. I think that we've had a lot of experience with these. They are often the most fun and the most engaged we are with television mm-hmm. and often the most disappointed that we can be with it. I think I share your feelings that the end didn't really work for me. I'm trying to like still kind of separate the signal from the noise, so to speak, about whether or not, and we've done this sort of bifurcation of the show all year where we're talking about Night Country and we're talking about True Detective. This episode had some very clear callbacks to True Detective. Couldn't be clearer. But in one case. really more, I wouldn't say superficially, but like 
I think philosophically rather than narratively, which is completely fine. Mm-hmm. I don't I did not want this show to necessarily answer questions about Carcosa or Yellow Kings or you know, international no. generations long conspiracies of evil. It, it, human is, a, it is a relief that yes. it did not attempt to do anything. But of that. obviously, like there is that connective tissue. So we'll talk about that. But yeah, why don't we just talk about the episode kind of on a brass tax level before we get into more generalities? Okay, do you want to? I, I did like the opening shot where it's chip, chip, we're in the night country. I like that. Yes. So we start with Navarro and Danvers tracking Clark back to essentially his workplace. So, Although they didn't seem to know that. Not until they got to the ladder. Yeah. Right. Right. So like they basically, Navarro and Danvers is the episode opens up, crack open a cold one, meaning the earth, and uh, slip into an ice cave and mm-hmm. uh, kind of follow their their noses or their, 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 they're hearing sounds that sound like voices, but in fact sounds like, I think it winds up being the machine hum of a laboratory, an Maybe. underground laboratory. And they find a ladder. The ladder goes up into the Salal Station. It being permanent. They, well, they night. see Clark too. They see they see Clark too. He's there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and Kodiak Clark, we call him. <laughs> Is that what we call him? I just trying that out. Uh, they capture Clark, and well, he gives them some business. He gives, he gives them a, what? What for? Like he he knocks out Evangeline. He he. Evangeline traps Navarro needed some time in the blue tent. Do you know what I mean? Like she has <laughs> been under concussion protocol since day three of night. I know, and. One thing that I she's feel got like, her ass kicked a lot in two weeks. Yeah, I need some clarity on this. Not medically. Like I'm really curious because TV and movies have given me very, very, very different visions of what happens when people's heads are hit with things like fire hydrants. Uh huh. Because I feel like that, that was would just be, a, a fire extinguisher. By the way, you've never picked up a fire hydrant. <laughs> Wow, I've just flunked the safety exam here at Spotify HQ. I just feel like it could have gone any number of ways. But all right. And and I will say my other favorite image of the episode was uh, Jodie Foster going ham with an ice spike to break through the glass. I yeah, that, that was, was a, cool. That was a cool scene. Uh, so yeah, after sort of some da- some fencing back and forth with Clark, Navarro and Danvers managed to capture him. They managed to tie him down to a chair yeah. and waterboard him, so to speak, with the sounds of Annie's death which finally breaks him and brings him to a point where he will, like, confess. I guess. First of all, that scene reminded me of when we all got the U2 album on our iPods, you know? <laughs> I was, I was going to ask you, like, what would be the, <laughs> the sound that would make you break? I think my Did Don Draper Buy the World of Coke ad. I think if you just played that <laughs> 10 times in a row, I would, I would tell you anything you want to know. Yeah. I, I had some. Qu- I mean, I don't know how much you want to do this. We're, we're going to go through the episode chronologically. You can stop as we go. We can we can chat about this as we go along. I had some questions about their interrogation style because I feel like we have been looking for this person who is the only survivor of a catastrophic incident, and they kind of just told him. He's to shut also the-, the chief suspect of right. a of a essentially like multi person murder, and they definitely didn't ask him anything. They just told him to shut the fuck up a lot, and then stuck an iPod in his ear. Yeah. You know, like, I feel like, and then they did get some stuff from him, and then they went away for a while, and they come back, and they were like, oh, so, by the way, what happened to the scientists? You know what I mean? I feel like there, there was a more efficient way of interrogating. Yeah, so one thing that I think I I at once liked, but mm. also wondered whether either A, I was reading too much into it, or B, thought could have just been maybe a little bit more explicit, mm. is the amount of time that passes. Now, obviously, they're, they're on New Year's Eve, 
the sort of episode ends on New Year's Day at some mm-hmm. point. It's still permanent night or constant night there. But one of the reasons why I think some of the Salal station stuff felt jagged is this idea that they're supposed to be there for hours and hours and hours. And mm-hmm. at one point, Liz goes and takes a nap. Um, a long nap, but long enough for a human man to freeze to death. There's a lot of going off and, and looking for snacks, um, peeling oranges. There's there's a lot of like intermission going on for this thing where you would be like, we have finally found the killer. We've got him strapped to a chair. We have broken him with audio torture. Let's find out everything we need to find out. Now, that's that's when they seem to take breaks. The only question, it's funny because the show's detective strategy throughout, which I really liked and it did finally come back again, is Liz is like, you're asking the wrong question, yes. ask again. The only question that Navarro asks Clark after finally getting him after the entire series is, did you really love Annie? That feels a little bit like... That's more ringer dish than, than anything else. You know what I mean? <laughs> <In> the watch. <laughs> I kind of think so. Um, but I'll also say, and this is part of my larger just conversation I want to have with you, is take everything else away from this episode. The arc of Night Country going from the men in the station to Liz and Navarro in the station, trapped in there dealing with the elements, dealing with the supernatural, dealing with whatever other juju is in there. Yeah, sleep-deprived, hungry, the, visions, etc. This is good. Yeah. And this is clearly the roadmap that they started with. In yes. a way. Like, this is something that they were writing to. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's a good idea, and it's a nicely symmetrical one for the series. I think one of the main ways that the series... And the moment when they when they kind of go up the ladder and mm-hmm. open the hatch and they're back in Salal, I was like, oh shit. Yeah, it was this a WTF really moment. Good. It yeah. was cool. And, and Twist and Shout is playing. I was like, this is really rad. But I do think that one of the ways that series like this can go awry, and we have no knowledge of the actual behind-the-scenes process, is when you become so obsessed with getting to an end point, the journey becomes um, secondary to the destination. And you could, there are many examples of shows where you can feel that. Now, I want to be very careful when I say this. I don't know what went on behind the scenes. And I also think there are many, many strong arguments to be made against the, we'll just figure it out as we go well, strategy, especially when you only have six hours How much to of it is a feature and how much of it is a bug? Mm. I, not to use a cliche, but... I use that cliche weekly on this podcast. We've watched countless six to eight episode limited series mysteries, or at mm-hmm. least start out as limited series mysteries. And I think generally speaking, those first three or four are where we're our happiest because that's where there's just possibility Mm -hmm. and there's just speculation and there's the most amount of dramatic tension because there's the most amount of like permutations of plot, Mm -hmm. right? And you're also still very much getting immersed in the setting, the world, like every new place they go to is like, ooh, Oliver Tagak's hut is interesting. Like, you know, after you get through four or five episodes, like, they're circling back through the same houses. They're circling, they're going down the same streets. It's always dark with a drone shot when they're driving. Like, you get used to it. And I think as you kind of come to, as you round third on these mysteries, typically, the inherent problem with it is that, like, (laughs) as all the doors close, the one you have to go through seems maybe, it's hard to make that last door you go through to be as satisfying as you want it to be. But here's... Here's why. I mean this sincerely. Like, my relationship with the show, my feelings about this final episode are completely different if I have a different relationship with Liz and Navarro. I think the show's cardinal sin isn't 
the revelation of what happened to Annie, what happens to Clark, what happened to the scientists, et cetera, which we will get into. It's to me that the work wasn't done to make either of these women compelling, not just protagonists, but a compelling partnership. The show had not a single thing to say about the relationship between these two women other than the shared history of Wheeler. There was never any sense that they ever got along particularly well. well. There was never any sense that they cared for each other or knew each other's quirks or finished each other's sentences, not in a cutesy way, but in a professional way, which is the hallmark of a two-handed detective story. Whereas, or Think about Lethal Weapon. You know, It's like, well, they couldn't be more different, but they complement each other and they have a dynamic and a chemistry. This show did not do that because it was too busy loading everyone with past events, past trauma, past things that needed to be healed through the mechanism of these six episodes there wasn't enough time in the present. And had I had a relationship with them and felt something for them and felt invested in them and more crucially in their relationship, who did it doesn't matter. Yeah, right. I don't care. No, that's right. And I think that, um, you know, I actually found, I, I think one of the lingering mysteries to some extent, I mean, we know that, we know that uh, Evangeline killed Wheeler. Uh, that We do, we saw Liz, that. And Liz was like, I was going to do it myself. So there is a kind of moral, they're sharing the moral burden of that to some extent. That, that, that's like when we go out to dinner and you take the check first. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to do it. <laughs> but I think that Liz uh, and Evangeline, I would be very curious to know why is that, that, obviously that's the straw that broke the camel's back for their sort of partnership. But there was a lot of illusions in the beginning of like, you know, she's going to, she's going to take you on, kid, and she'll break your heart. Like, mm -hmm. that there's something that Liz did that mm -hmm. sort of disappointed yes. Evangeline. Like, I'm pretty interested in their kind of partnership and their relationship. Like, I said that there was that intimacy when Liz goes over to Evangeline's house at that point and seems to know where at least she used to keep canned goods and stuff like that. There's a kind of familiarity that I don't think is ever really referenced in mm -hmm. the last two episodes because there's so much... Like you said, either it's the trauma of their their pasts and their kind of identities, or it's the mystery of the present. And so it's a little but bit, you know. Often when TV shows go off the rails, it's because they are the wrong shaped story for the wrong size box. And I think that giving Issa Lopez the, the, the credit for what she wanted to do and what she wanted to say about this world and these characters, this wasn't long enough. Because there was not enough real estate to do anything in the present when everything was about stuff that had happened in the past. Yeah. Things that we saw or things that we didn't see. And that's a problem. That's a problem that we didn't get to spend time with these characters, seeing them react to things in real time, understanding their shared history. There just simply wasn't space for it. Yeah. Uh, Salal, it turns out, had discovered some groundbreaking medical advances within the Mm -hmm. basically like prehistoric ice of, yes. of this place. But the problem with that is mm -hmm. the only way to functionally get at this to, stuff to, to soften the permafrost was to continue to pollute Ennis, which the mine right. was happy to abide, oblige them because the mine uh, has a financial relationship with Solid Station and both entities have a financial relationship with the Tuttle organization, sure. which is a reference to the first season, we never really got much clarity or... or. But, but then, and then we find out that Annie's sin was that she was the real true detective here. She discovered this. Her investigation yeah. is the seemingly the best investigation because the investigation of her investigation gives us nothing other than Pete Pryor Googling and Liz and Evangeline walking into a cave. Yeah, so, so Annie discovers what Salal's research was about and destroyed their work, years of work. 
and Lund, who you may remember as being the Pazuzu-looking guy in the hospital mm-hmm. bed a couple of episodes ago, is so enraged that he stabs her 30 times with this with this rod right. that he's got. And in a callback to Danvers' telling of the Wheeler killing, Clark kind of elides his mm-hmm. role. Like, so in much the same way that Danvers sort of tells Pryor about Wheeler, and in this scene, you can tell that's not exactly what happened. Clark's telling Danvers and Evangeline, like, I loved her. I couldn't do anything, but he is in fact seemingly the person who finally kills her in this. In but this, this is this is another the show just sort of the scientists aren't characters. The scientists have as much personality in this scene as they did when they were a frozen corpsicle. And we're led to believe that these people we know nothing about immediately fall in line with their superior and violently gang stab a woman. That that's immediately all of their reactions. Which I, I haven't worked with a lot of uh, Arctic scientists. So I struggled with that, accepting that. But I also think that, that the two things that you've just given us in terms of the development of the show point to two of my, my bigger critiques. One, Clark is like, we, we did it. We found the thing yeah, that was going to fix the world. But he doesn't even say that. Yeah. It's just a yada yada. So we found a magic thing. Yeah. And Annie... And we je- get a view, we get a, a little bit of a skeleton of like mm-hmm. a... Big old, big old ice snake or whatever. Uh, ice thing that is shaped in the, the right. spiral pictogram. And Annie not only discovered this and discovered the pollution, but then just in a fit of rage destroyed their magical groundbreaking work. The evidence, yeah. Okay, that's fine. But what could have been interesting was, give me some stakes here. Say, literally, we found something that would cure pancreatic cancer. Not all cancer, one specific vicious cancer. and But it was polluting one town. And so then it becomes, you know, a, a very familiar moral argument, the yeah. trolley car argument of like the greater good versus the small local thing. Maybe Liz's husband isn't there because he died of pancreatic cancer. So he would have wa- she would have wanted that. Connect this magical work to the quotidian day-to-day life of the investigation, the people, and I, I'm interested in it. Yeah. Instead of, Annie just said no and knocked it all away. This also connects to the other thing. This is my my Liz and Evangeline point, and I, I feel like it's worth making here again. Our relationship as fans of this genre, and stop me if you don't agree with any part of this, it never comes from clever permutations of plot or revelations of identities of evil or murderer or the evil that men do. It comes from feeling emotionally invested and interested in the people along the way. And... It has to be someone along the way. And I say that very succinctly because I've already given you why I don't think Liz and Evangeline were necessarily that compelling in the present. Mm -hmm. What we have in this finale is a show that has not given us fully fleshed out protagonists. It has also not given us fully fleshed out victims. And it also hasn't given us killers. The show, you know, just a... Okay, so let's just say devil's advocate. Yeah. Do you think that there's something to that? Do you think that there is something, is the show trying to say something by like inverting all of our expectations about it's detectives, possible. killers, and villains? It's possible. Now, I, my guess is, I didn't talk to Issa, but I, my guess is that she can speak about these choices passionately. I'm not suggesting in any way that this is laziness or this is like a, a lack of ability in terms of constructing stories. Sure. I think that very often when people are given the chance to work within a genre, there is a very strong creative desire to subvert the genre. Yeah. Make a mark on the drama. Do something different with it. Of course, like all creative people have that energy and also that ego. And I I respect that a lot. 
if the argument was to say that the, these, these scientists are faceless on purpose, that they are what happens when, to put it bluntly, men think they know better. Um, that is a, that's an argument. Yeah. And that is thematically interesting. As, as, is, as is, to your point about yeah. like there being an absent, an empty chair with the villain piece, like Clark dies believing that something that took the shape of Annie, mm-hmm. but is much older than Annie and is, is, is possibly ancient, mm-hmm. is a force that's out there in the night country that that's what killed the Salal scientists. Mm-hmm. And even though we get the explanation for like what led them to running off into the night, I, I think that there is like still a cool idea somewhere in the like thing you can't put a name on. And I think yes. if I was going to give the, the show like this finale a compliment, I did like that aspect of it of like this guy who's literally scaring himself to death at this point is still believing that like Annie is out there mm-hmm represented as some sort of force. And frankly, Evangeline and Danvers have both had enough experience in the last yeah. two episodes to be like, maybe there is something beyond. Yeah, and I think, I agree with you, I think the show is absolutely at its best when it twins the ineffable, indescribable supernatural with something that is also systemic and hard to get your arms around, but practical, such as the way the women are treated in this town who are cleaning up after these guys. So that is also a huge theme, and it has an almost supernatural fury in the way that vengeance is wreaked upon them. I get that. Yeah. But where, where I can't find, where it's like running your hand along an ice wall, is that give, give me an in here. If, if the show is about Annie's investigation, that's interesting. That show, I'm, okay, so there's a, there's a, um, a local indigenous woman who has a, rela- a forbidden yeah. relationship with a scientist yeah. and discovers what's going on, and it was put in peril with it. Like, that sounds like a pretty good show. Yeah, I mean, Annie's relationship with Clark might have been the most interesting thing about the series in retrospect mm-hmm. to me, uh, about the season, in terms of, like, their kind of uh, deep attraction to one another and what it was that they bonded over. I mean, that trailer that Clark had purchased right. from the guy with essentially a shrine to these images and, you know, like whether they're like indigenous to that area or like just like these things that they're the two of them were seeing in the ice the tattoos like mm-hmm. all that shit was really interesting this is this is what i'm talking about though once you start drilling down so to speak mm-hmm. to get to like okay well let's make a choice and say what it was so what it is i don't know i mean like danvers decides to take a nap after this clark escapes and freezes to death you, you did miss my favorite part which is when yet another orange rolls out this time from the refrigerator and navarro like very like mystically says you know, my mother loved oranges. I'm like, you know who else loves oranges? Everyone. Universal approval rating. I'm oranges. not a big oranges guy. Well, oh, here we go. Yeah. See, this is Just me. <laughs> Kaya, pro or at con? I love a good orange, especially yeah. like a cutie. Yeah, so this is the thing. When I was a kid growing up and they'd give you orange slices and they were these bulky, tasteless things that had yeah. a lot of seeds, I don't want that. But now that we live in the bounty that is California and you get these little clementines or tangerines, they're delicious you're snacks. Just, you're just in the pocket of Big Newsome. You're always talking about... California is the it's great here the agricultural do you know how cold it is everywhere else I don't okay Um, speaking of being cold Liz is also seeing visions so Navarro obviously has been experiencing these things with like the oranges with seeing things uh, at the dredging station several episodes ago she's very distracted by this but Liz is also seeing visions this now of her son Mm -hmm. Holden who died in a car accident and uh, Navarro has also been talking about 
I, I'm frankly suicidal ideation mm. for, for the most part, and talking about wanting to walk out into the the abyss of the ice. Uh, yeah, and he, she, he before he does that, he does say something that I I need. I just want to know what sound you made in your living room when Clark says time is a flat circle. Um, I I think I was like. He's gonna do it, Jim. He said, he said it, Jim. Yeah, I think I, I think I was I, like, I, I, I like the idea that it's in conversation with the first sure. season, and I like the idea that there are certain people in the world that have seen things that right. make them say this thing, right? But it did feel a little Leonardo DiCaprio pointing yeah. at the screen. I, I, you know, my reaction was, I was like, oh my god, he admitted <laughs> immediately out, immediately out. Yeah. In a way that uh, the other stuff, the cute, like, and, and I think we were borne out in our theory that the Tuttle Carcosa stuff was really more of, I met, you know, that I felt like Issa was giving things to the fans. Yeah. You know, like this is, which they did not receive necessarily the way they were intended. Yeah. Uh, so Liz falls into an ice hole, a uh, hole in the, in the sea. Where's the sea? sea I think is that everywhere. the sea, so at the end of the episode, Liz has absolutely prime waterfront wheel state. Jeez. And I wonder it's whether wild. or not yeah. is that mean she has a beach house, or does that mean in the winter her house is actually this sick spot over the water, but yes. in the winter it's just a fucking tundra. I think it's that. I think that there's yeah, there's like there's the sea, and then there's the like we can walk over it six months of the year. Sea. Sure, some land bridges. Guess who won't be walking over any fucking frozen seas? Is it my guy Cr? This guy. <laughs> but what? If, think how dope it is under the ice. That's your shit. That's the sea. <laughs> You're so close to it. That's true. What else happens? Oh, by the way, this entire time, mm-hmm. Pete's got to throw his dad in the in the fucking hole. Like I, I, Pete's we, still using Fantastic to clean up his dad's body. I again, this is the wrong reaction. But when I was like, "We're doing the house cleaning montage of just like just Pete in his skivvies." Just grabbing the Mrs. Myers. People just dropping by in blizzards while his dad's teeth are in the wall. I mean, (laughs) that was a tough one. And again, it's like, I I can see it, Jim. I can see the vision. (laughs) Jim, he schemed, she schemed it up real well. You know what I mean? 12 personnel. Like it's fascinating, a lot of motion. The idea that Peter Pryor, and again, that name is feels loaded with significance that his journey was quite literally killing his father and corrupting his soul to save his... Like, there's a lot of heaviness there. Yeah. But he also ran out of Rose as a character. So... Well, I thought that there was going to be something going on out there with Rose. Well, also... Yeah, right. Also, he he goes to Kyla and he's just like... I got to uh, do this one thing. I got to do one bad thing. And Kyla, who's been real chill about everything this entire series, is like, you do that. You do that one bad thing, buddy. Yeah. And then come back and hug your son. Then he goes to Rose. So again, it's like Rose living out there, giving speeches and making canapes and like, and, and I was about to say sharpening a rifle, but sure. Um, these are fascinating and beautiful ideas and they lead to theorizing. And again, I'm sure that Issa will be doing a lot of interviews tonight, tomorrow, where she explains the, what Rose means in terms of someone who, a woman in this case, who checked out of a Society. certain kind of life yeah. to live a certain kind of way and thus making her the person who can say to Peter Pryor, uh, it's not over. The, in that sense, the time is a flat circle. But, but also the but implication grief. that Rose has done some stuff like this in her life, you know, yeah. Yes. And, and obviously knows what to do with a dead body, you know, like, also she's, she's a hunter as well. So I, I would also say that, like, 
I would never be able to do a crime, certainly not cover up a crime. That's what but I else. feel like. That's what, you know who says that? Killers. Murders. Sociopaths. <laughs> Kaya, cut that clip. Save it for the future investigation. But I'm just saying that if I was in the night country, I feel like night country lends it. You know how everyone is a wine expert when they go to Sonoma? Like if you're in the night country, just like imagine, you, could, you could lose some bodies. I, I honestly would like try to have you put in some sort of hibernation mm-hmm. state if we were mm-hmm. in the night country together. You would just be like, it's cold. It's so cold. <laughs> what would you be saying? Gunga Din? I'd be like, we're at the bar. At noon, because it's dark. Right. Yeah. It would be like, this is the best. Are we sleeping in like a Salal-type hotel? Are you like, good night, sir? <laughs> Lying back. Um, so Pryor is getting rid of his dad's body. I can't body. believe you think I would be a good hang at Covix. No, I think you would be fine for the first couple of days. But then I think you'd be like, I have a head cold. Uh, it's 100%. I'm not, you know, I haven't flown to England once like you. So, so I don't have that Navarro same. saved Liz from hyperthermia. They're warming up. There's... You know, like they're kind of reconciling a little bit, and then they have kind of uh, because of a, one of those you know classic like set, Navarro says something, and Liz is like, "Wait a second, what did you say before that?" The hatch, and they go back to the hatch that leads up into the salal. She gets closure on her son. She she, she allows just moments before all of this when Navarro's talking about, "I've seen your Can son." Can I ask you? So you're not going to remember this, but I I have mm-hmm. to go back and look at it. Mm-hmm. We just watched mm-hmm. it. I don't. Is that what? Holden says to Navarro because I thought he said protect my mommy. Um, I didn't have the closed captions on. No, she, she says to Danvers, your son says he sees you. But I oh. thought earlier that he was like protect my mommy. Oh, unreliable like narrators. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's a it, consistent thing in the, I, in the show. I just thought what would you want to know if you were Liz? Of course she would be like, yes, my son sees me. That's incredible. Yeah, that was a gift. That was some human. I mean, they were quite nice to each other once they were both seeing shit. Yes. Like, and then but I do when, before that though when she was like Shut your sick, sick fuck mouth! Like a lot of, a lot of swears on this show, and then later she falls in, you? falls in the ice once, and it's just like, tell me visions. I would be like that too if I fell in the ice. They figure out to go check the hatch for Prince, and they do this by pouring like a chemical solution on the hatch and mm-hmm. using a UV light, and there's a handprint sort of to the right. One thing leads to another, and they figure out that that print mm-hmm. must belong to one of the sort of workers at the Salal station. Do you want to comment on the the moment right before that discovery? Yeah. When the Doom Core cover of Twist and Shout starts? Oh, yeah. That was when I left my body. (laughs) And when you you exited your body, was Eagle Eye Cherry playing? (laughs) That was going to the Doom Core Eagle Eye Cherry. Do you think there's like, the Night Country is the place where the shadow versions of all these artists play these bad versions of their famous songs. They go over to the uh, dorm or apartment complex where the the cleaning lady from Salal lives. But they all live. Yes. So this is like I it's, know it's, it's very Agatha Christie. It's very like we get there, all of the sort of characters are are assembled. It, is and the they, implication that they all live there, or that they had a rager because it was New Year's Eve? I don't know. I think maybe it's supposed to be like a a, a kind of like housing situation. But I do think that like it's it's really more these women all coming out and at once being held accountable, but also telling their story about what happened. And what it ha- what happened is they find out because of their invisibility to these scientists, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're walking around this research station. They basically figure out what Annie found out and what happened to her. These women knew a lot about the sh- unique shape of the stab wounds. Yes. And rather than going to the police, they decide to uh, exact justice themselves, right. round up the men, put them in the back of a truck, take them out into the ice, undress them, 
and and be like, and see what happens. See what happens. And they, they, I could have guessed what happens. And we we all know the slab avalanche slash demon out in the night country gets them. Did, and did that house remind you at all of where you lived in Roxbury in nineteen ninety? It was just like another dude coming just out. A bunch being of like, dudes. I listened to the Promise Ring too. Um, <laughs> really, really took me back. Uh, and then they kind of all agree to to cover it up. I mean, just as they will with Hank's death, with mm. Otis's death, with the Salal station guys, with Clark. The final sort of real scene is a montage of Evangeline leaving Ennis, uh, moving on with her life. I would only stop you to say it's not just a montage. It is a classic true detective internal affairs investigation with the framing of yes, two cops. Yes, that's what I was going to get to. Is that they're and, interviewing yeah. Danvers. She's giving her sort of version of events. Mm-hmm. Her story, as uh, Which is essentially like, some things can't be explained, and there, there are some questions don't have answers, which obviously goes against her philosophy as an investigator. And we don't know who put the tongue. I have a bunch of what we don't know. Oh, I'm sorry. Go no, on. it's okay. But we the, the series ends with, with Liz sitting on a beautiful deck, mm-hmm. looking over an incredible body of water, mm-hmm. and uh, she is joined... While, while insisting in her voiceover to the inspectors mm. that Evangeline is gone for good, she is joined by Evangeline. Now, Which whether I, or not that's a spectral version of her or like emotionally, psychologically, like she's there, but like... And I should add that I was confused by that. Yeah, you I, thought it might be Leah. I thought it was her daughter. That's okay. I Partly because... Well, she's talking about Evangeline in that scene, though. Yep. I guess I <laughs> thought it meant that Liz was somehow healed like her family was somehow going to move forward because again I don't understand this is this might just be my ignorance I didn't I don't fully understand the Evangeline arc you know uh, uh, of is she walking out I guess the idea is that she just she walked out but she came back that there's yeah some sort I mean of, also like I think she walked out towards that sunrise mm-hmm. I don't know she she did whatever she needed did, to do yeah did, did you have any reaction to the Northern Lights? Because I thought it was interesting that once Pete, well, once Rose stabs the oxygen out yeah. of dead Hank's lungs and they dump him into the frozen water, yeah, like Yahweh is like a light show to <laughs> celebrate your achievement. Is that Yahweh? You voice? have done it. <laughs> what? Is, why? My, why is he kind of like the movie phone guy? <laughs> my religion is. Why don't you put your dad into the frozen sea? <laughs> Why don't you tell me what kind of patricide you'd like to commit? Uh, my religion's very private to me, so I won't be speaking on that, but I do worship the movie phone guy. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, Right. To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. 
When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Here's some kind of takeaways. Hank was the inside man all along, obstructing the anti-investigation, disposing of her body. Week, yeah. Rose, who there was a lot of speculation of like, who is this woman yep. who can see her dead lover, Travis, who may or may not be Rust Cole's father. Mm-hmm. Like, what's up with her? Is she the Yellow Queen? Does she have some sort of connection to like a pagan evil? No, she's Rose. Uh, she seems to know a lot about the cost of killing someone, but that's all we really find out. We never really hear her story about that. That's okay. I'm fine with that one. Pete is back together with his wife because it wasn't Danvers. It was his dad that had the hold on him. That's, mm. that's my take. Yeah. Um, so it's cool to work a lot. The Just, mine has yeah. been closed because someone, probably Liz, leaked the video of Clark now, helpfully recording a complete statement and testimony about how Salal and the mine had been poisoning the town. Now, my understanding, again, tell me if I'm wrong here, because I was definitely lost on Incredulity Island at this point in watching the episode. But the assumption that I took from that was that during the time Liz was taking a nap, but before she allowed him to walk to his death in the ice, Navarro did a more traditional interrogation and filmed Clark admitting everything so she would have a record. That Because when... I think also when Liz is like, how the fuck could you let him leave? Mm-hmm. I think maybe the implication is like, she got what she needed out of this guy. And then let him do what he wanted right. to do. And maybe that's why she kept asking him if, she, if he loved her. Because it seemed to be that was the most important thing to Navarro is whether or not this was like tragic for him or whether he was like it a homicidal like asshole. So, so the, the mine is shut down. Um, yes. The great work. Nature is healing. The great work has ceased. Yeah. The incredible potential of the frozen prehistoric ice snake are you, is denied are you humanity. Thinking, are you thinking of zagging and being pro-Salal Station? I'm 100% pro- What do you mean zagging? I'm pro-Salal Station. <laughs> I am 100% pro-Salal Station. Are you sure? You have to have a sense of perspective here. Okay? What if I just had to sacrifice the few to help the mini? <laughs> it seems pretty cut and dry to me. No offense, but like, a lot of people get can't. That's why they didn't name it, I guess. But yeah, I'm just saying, I also, again... If you're going like, to do it in that kind of fashion, though, I don't trust you to, to you know, like... What if? I'm just... If I have to, here. like, take a, a vaccine of, of prehistoric bone marrow... Yeah. Like, Go you're probably going to be charging me through the nose for that. Oh, you think it's like GlaxoSmithKline tuttle? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think if the main thing the pollution did was just melt the ice a little bit, like, 
As I someone, don't think that's the main thing. As someone causing stillbirths. No, no, that was the bad thing. Yeah. But the good thing was relatively minor. Okay. And as someone who defrosts <laughs> a lot of bagels in the morning, things like that, I feel like there was another, there was a third way here. Have you tried using pollution to I, defrost your no. bagels? I'm just saying like- Just pure sewage, room temp. Tuttle has a lot of money. They could buy a lot of like hair dryers and hire some people to stand there just like, just, yeah. just softening things up a little bit. Why do we have to throw the whole project out? Um, mine closes Quavic. Uh, you know, probably my one of my favorite dudes in this show. That's my guy. He gets his SpongeBob toothbrush back from uh, Navarro before she leaves town. Here's some unanswered questions mm-hmm. for me. And, okay. and this is without doing like a deep read, deep dive, but I imagine some of our listeners are probably thinking some of the same things. What was the shine, Shrine trailer thing? Like, I, I really wanted to know more about Aunt, the nature of Annie and Clark's relationship. Were they on this like trip together where they were like, we can see into the fucking nth dimension through this pictogram? Or was it simply just, well, two kids kind of kind of fallen in love, but then she finds out her boyfriend is in fact an evil scientist? Again, I think that one of the strengths of the whole project of True Detective has been the balancing act between specifics and suggestion. And I, everyone knows my criticisms of the pre, the previous seasons, but I, I do appreciate that the metaphysical stuff was window dressing, essentially, mm-hmm. towards a, a more specific story about what people do. I also don't mind the implications on the margins here of, of something connective, sure. something demonic or whatever. But at a certain point, we need some clarity. And instead, we have a show that was about a complete non-believer, Liz, and someone who is a completely credulous believer. But what does any of that mean? What it means in the practice of the show is that Navarro sees wild shit a lot. Yeah. And talks well, welcome to, to watching people. True Detective. Well, thank you. <laughs> no, I mean, like, that is, but this is. But, but your point, which is, is there any, where in the Venn diagram of indigenous belief and oral tradition and story culture and this weird town that might be um, a way station for the underworld, where's the Venn diagram where all these things overlap with Carcosa and Tuttles and who did what? Mm-hmm. I, I just need to just, plant me somewhere so I understand what these things are saying to I don't each know. other. So is that symbol I can I can yeah. I can spin myself out and speculate like about what what they were looking for. It's like, you know, as as they suggest the Tuttle Corporation is a holding company but, for all these places. But yeah. I don't even want to know what the Tuttles are looking for. I want to know what Clark and Annie are doing making, you know, making a uh like dark Alexander Calder exhibit. I thought that was that was so fucking cool. You know what I it mean? It was cool, yeah. but why were they doing that? What was their secret demonic love that then ruptured when she became, um, you know, she became obsessed with writing the new version of Silent Spring? Tell me about that. So one of the actually, the last unanswered questions I have is just like, to what extent were some of the things that we saw in the show actually things that happened mm-hmm. versus things that either Annie or Danvers perceived? The tongue is real because they actually run forensic Mm-hmm. you know, investigations or research into it to figure out like when, how old it is and who it belongs to and stuff like that. But at the end of the confession, so to speak, of the, the ladies, mm-hmm. they're like, that wasn't us. We didn't cut anybody's tongue out. That wasn't our story. But we don't find out whose story it was. It's not just that we didn't cut it out. We didn't put it there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we don't know what's going on with that. No. I also don't know and, whether And I guess on not- a practical level, that was what, that was why it became the Annie investigation in addition to, because otherwise- there was no, there was no there there, right? Yes. To connect these stories. Yes. Until you found out the Clark Annie connection. And the tattoos probably would have eventually started to pull it together. Maybe, but yeah. the last one I had was just like, 
Lund, who is the murderer scientist mm-hmm. in the station, when he's also the guy who's basically a tree stump by the end of it mm-hmm. and is, you know, they go visit him in the hospital. He is Groot. And he wakes up and is like, your mother, I can't remember what he says, basically your mother says hello or something it's like that. basically like the Mark Wahlberg SNL yeah. Um, But he is a fucking possessed demon. Mm-hmm. But only Evangeline hears him talk. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't ever say, by the way, Lund woke up and had some stuff to say. So was Lund some sort of deeper evil? Or was he possessed by some kind of like supernatural power or whatever? Like, what are we supposed to take from that? And other than that, like, yeah, there's a bunch of other questions I had about like, oh, and they saw that. Well, so was that real? Was that in their heads? The Christmas tree and the dredging station, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's about it. Well, you're not going to have answers for these things, I don't think. What if I surprised you and I did? I have two. I have two bigger points of of concern, okay. not concern, just to, to commentary that that come out of this. And I think both of them are really. I think I think in many ways this show is emblematic of where we are with with TV, good and bad. And there's plenty of good. And I apologize that we're not dwelling on a lot of it because I <laughs> I really had a lot of time for the show at the beginning. I really enjoyed Jodie Foster's performance. I thought that, and I mean this sincerely, that for someone who has not worked in TV before to be writing and directing six episodes of something to deliver on uh, a particular vision, I think Issa did it. She Mm -hmm. delivered the show that I think she very much wanted to make and is proud of. And I think that's not a small thing. It's very hard to do that on this scale and execute. But I do think there's, there continues to be a really worrying disconnect between the attitude of people who make TV as being the things are business as usual, meaning we'll figure it out eventually. We are sunk cost. We've hired, we've, we've booked locations in Iceland. We have these talent. We're going to figure it out. We don't know what went on behind the scenes of the show, but we have keep pointing, we keep pointing out the fact that there were two writing teams credited with the penultimate episode, which suggests that there were some things still being done when they were filming or mm-hmm. later in the process. You kind of can't just figure it out when you are a closed ended six hour show. You can do it when you're a, open-ended comedy and you're figuring out that it's funnier if if Michael Scott is in on the joke yeah, right. a little bit or whatever. Right. You kind of can't do that. You you have to, if you're spending this much money doing this high stakes in such a limited way, you have to do, I think you have to do more to be buttoned up before you get into it. And I say this as someone who loves the improvisatory nature of how a lot of TV is made. The second thing that I kind of can't get over with the show is it just reminded me that I would really, really love more programs that are about the present. I don't mean that are like ripped from the headlines 2024, but I mean about the present engaged lives of its characters because we are more, as human beings, not even fictional characters, we are more than just like walking around skin sacks of our trauma and history. Yeah. We are more than that. I I agree. And I think that TV storytelling has gone with some great, you know, I May Destroy You as a show about trauma. I mean, I'm not trying to paint with a wide, wide brush here. But I think that this mode of explicating characters I think that that was the promise of this show for me in those opening episodes is that it was actually something closer to Danvers and Navarro having different approaches to detective Yes, and here's a crazy thing that happened. Yeah. And let's go. And that that Navarro is going to kind of be an extension of the community that she's policing and Danvers is going to be more adversarial and what happens when these two people are put on an inexplicable crime together. wonderfully said. Absolutely. Absolutely. But instead, we are constantly pulled backwards with not just Liz's uh, loss of her son and a car crash, but also the Wheeler thing. Um, and whatever happened to Navarro in war. 
And then Navarro's war story, plus her sister, who is dispatched with pretty quickly, um, but we're still meant to be taking that in. It's just it's just not a load-bearing thing. I think those two comments uh, are connected because, yeah, you could do a long-form exploration of people's backstory while telling their story forward, but in more than six episodes. Yeah. So I, I know that, I know I've been negative. I feel like you've been a little more fair-minded, but I, I, I think my I think frustration I'm just like, is more, I'm trying to look at the my experience of the series in total. Okay, so let's talk about the total and also in relationship to the larger franchise. Well, I think that the larger franchise, I think that this was obviously, I think at times, like very well stitched to the larger franchise in terms of like, it, it acknowledged without trying to alter the DNA, right? So it put itself into the larger conversation about True Detective and about like the world that Nick Pizzolatto sort of started with those three seasons. Mm-hmm. But it didn't try to ever say this is what Nick Pizzolatto was really going for in season one or three or whatever, specifically those two. I do want to evaluate it on like the joy it gave me across the first three episodes to maybe the disappointment I felt in the last three. I think it's worth saying those, especially, yeah, those first three episodes were very engaging. Like I was not, I'm not just saying like, oh, it's not bad. Like I was fully in. For sure. And enjoying the episodes. I was not second screening. I was not nitpicking. I I mean, even episode, is it five where they, I guess it would be five where they do the, the, between the sort of privacy door chip exchange. Like you're still into it. that, That was a beautiful scene. Yeah. This was the first episode where there was nothing in particular that I could pull out and say, aha. Um, yeah. I'm 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 vibing with this. Which is strange because I I did that recap. I you know, I missed some things. We we joked about others. For an episode of this length, I don't really find that it, a ton happened mm-hmm. in some ways because the the narrative was really tied up in two major scenes. Clark explaining what happened and the the women explaining what happened. Mm-hmm. You know, and Pryor's Pryor's like sort of communion with his father, like his 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 bearing of his father was really kind of an surplus to events. There's no consequences from it. Nobody seems particularly stressed out about it except for Pryor, who we get like one last shot of him lying awake in bed. But I don't know. But I want to go back to that point you made, which is one of the things that we found interesting. And I want to stress this again. We're just sitting here on the sidelines. And so, you know, watching the world go by and be like, oh, that's interesting to me is not a way for a creator of a show to be responding or making anything. But this is something that you and I both picked up on and agree about, which is the idea of the collision between who's doing the policing and who's being policed in a in a in a interesting location such as Ennis is um that's a powerful one. And I think that again it's, and it's brought up. I mean like it's certainly brought yeah. up, but but by sidelining Pete into the father stuff the idea that comes up a couple times with Kayla where she's just like, I married the white boy and this is what I get. This is what happens. That becomes secondary and then it becomes even more troubling when she's like, go do your evil thing and come back to our family. In the same way that after she's had her experience in the ice, Liz is totally fine with her stepdaughter applying the the traditional, I don't even know what it's called, the face face painting that she was so angry about before. It's just like a, it's a magical supernatural switch. You get dunked in the water and you're baptized and believing in Ennis and you come out the conversation about why she wasn't letting that happen and what it means to her, there's no space for that. So instead, she's just very angry about things she can't control throughout. We don't, because isn't the implication that her husband, who's never really spoken of, or her partner, is himself indigenous? I, and died in that car accident. And died in the car accident. Yeah. So what is the story of her hostility? And could we have looked at it more? I mean, again, 
It is the cheapest. I mean, this is the thing, though. It's like we. It's we, the cheapest we, form of criticism to be could, like, why couldn't the car have gone that way? But it's way? also like we ask if you're like, I don't need those characters to be the accumulation of their traumas. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to do trauma, show me like Give the me nuts and bolts of the yeah, trauma yeah, yeah, yeah. and tell the story. So it's difficult. I, I also think that I remain, I, this probably seems counterintuitive, but I still, I think my feelings about the success or failures or whatever you may want to call them about the season could be put into a different perspective and context if HBO is committed to handing the keys to more people. Like, I I would love it. They wouldn't do this for any number of reasons. Like True Detective Desert Town, True Detective. Right. They will never do this for both, for reasons both um, financial, creative, and logistical. But if this this, uh, edition was well, got good ratings or whatever, or did well for HBO. Yeah. I would love it if Casey went on stage the next time he addresses people and is just like, here are the two people who are getting the keys next. I don't have more details, but like these yeah, are the I mean, filmmakers that we yeah. like. Then it becomes like a, then it becomes kind of an incredible, like it's like the Sundance Lab. It's like, what's your detective story? Yeah, what's right. your true detective? But in a, in a, it, it is tough to consider the totality of it when you have three seasons of one very, very specific dude and then this. Yes, and also I think a chunk of the audience being engaged with it because they're like, I want to see some connective tissue to the the mothership that I really adore. Yes. I, I, also, don't, I don't know, like, demographically how that breaks down in terms mm-hmm. of the audience. Like, how many people out there were like, McConaughey is going to show I, up and he's going to be in the Salal station or something. It's also just so weird to be like, what is... We, we should have been doing this before, but we have been doing it for weeks. But like, what is... What makes a true detective? And like... I, you and I both had a lot of time for season three. Mm-hmm. Does season three work better if it's not called True Detective? <laughs> like if it's just a um, Mahershala Ali showcase about a cop? And it's like called Soldier Story? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. But again, I think I would be more, I, I think I would be more chill about some of the illusions and relationships if they were part of a larger project. Yeah. Um, well, I'd be interested to read some of the stuff that Issa says coming out of this and some of the sort of like explanations about some of the material obviously some some loose strings i don't know i mean maybe perhaps like she would come back to this material at some point i look forward to reading some of her her statements about like the show itself i also would just say like to add to my collection of things i'm suddenly announcing as emblematic of television like the kind of joaquin phoenix gladiator thumb on an entire project that people spent years on because we got six hours of it is tough yeah you know, I I think that there were a lot of things to like in this show. I've, I've I've already seen even in advance of the finale, people being like, "Well, why was so much time spent on John Hawks being catfished by the by his Russian bride?" But I'm like, that made the show good to yeah, me. Yeah, it, was, it also made Hank something other than this nefarious white guy standing in the background of scenes. Exactly. Where you're like, I know you guys hired John Hawks to be something more than the sixth cop. Yeah. You know, I mean. And then also Christopher Eggleston showing up for two scenes. I mean, look, he actually was only in it for two scenes. I mean, I guess you could say like he was part of the conspiracy. In his, in his interviews, he was like, they said, come to Iceland and do scenes with Jodie Foster, who's one of my heroes. So he That's was cool. happy to do anything. But but I'm saying like those details matter. The attention that she paid to things within these stories matter and are significant for the, the medium, for the storytelling, and they are good. Like I will continue to say like what she did with the cremation scene at the top awesome. of the last episode is really fascinating yeah. and very, very unique. And suggest a different way I thought to that tell. the and I think the 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 imagining of the station the imagining of the ice cave beneath the station the idea of the hatch like there's so much stuff to like in this I just don't think story wise like it eventually like no, added up for me and I think that 
you know, to be frank, I think that that is a, ultimately a lot of this are the, are the problems with the box, not what you're putting in the box. Yeah. Okay. Let's wrap there. We're going to be back on Thursday. We'll talk a little Mr. Spade. Maybe we'll talk some Abbott Elementary. Maybe we'll talk some Tokyo Voice. There's so much stuff on right now. Thanks to Kaya for producing us. And thanks to everybody for listening to our True Detective Pods over the last couple of weeks. I'll see you in Carcosa, Baranskis. 